for this week, I want us just to take a, a break and a, a different look in the Scripture and consider the loving kindnesses of Yahweh. Our study this morning is going to move at a much quicker pace than our study through a New Testament epistle like Hebrews. So do not fear when you see that we have 43 verses to cover. They will unfold uh, rather quickly before us. But I, I chose to read the scripture reading of Psalm 107 so that we could see it all at one time. And we will see unfolded before us, Psalm 107 paints a beautiful word picture of just what type of God we are gathered to worship this morning. Our God is in the business of saving sinners. If you're a believer, that is because at some point in your life, you called out to Christ in repentance and faith and he saved you. Now, there are much more workings of grace behind the scenes involved there, but that has to have happened. You called out to Christ in humility and faith, and he saved you. The Lord is so kind that he is willing and able to bring about trials and circumstances and difficulty that reveal our desperate condition and draw us to himself. That's why we love to hear baptism testimonies of the Lord's mercy in someone's life because it is a a visual picture right in front of us of our God demonstrating his power to save. The heart that fails to benefit from this psalm, Psalm 107 that we'll study this morning, is the one that refuses to call upon the Lord for salvation. The heart that refuses to believe that they're in peril, so they will not call out in prayer. They will not see the Lord's provision, and in turn, they will not praise Him. This is at the heart of the Pharisees as they observe Christ's ministry. They, they looked upon Christ interacting with sinners, and, and they judged that to be a problem with His ministry. In Luke 15, 2, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling and they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So in Luke 15, the Lord goes on and gives three incredible parables uh, demonstrating the heart of God is to save sinners like us. We won't work through these parables, uh, but I would like to mention them as an introduction to Psalm 107. The first is the shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one who is lost. The second is the woman with ten coins, and she loses one, and she does not stop searching for that coin until she has found it. And the third is the prodigal son who repents and returns to the loving father. I just want to briefly consider the first one of these. In Luke 15, verse 4 to 7, Jesus says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that, In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now there, the Lord is saying this as an indictment to the Pharisees who think they have no need for repentance. I just want to put it on our hearts before we enter Psalm 107 this morning and acknowledge if we have this stubborn, proud heart of unbelief that thinks we have no need that God can meet, we can meet all of our needs on our own, this is the heart that is lost and unknowing. The heart that will not turn in repentance because they do not see their desperate condition. 
And I want to remind you, it is the heart of God to save sinners who see their condition, who see their peril, and they come to the Lord in faith and humility and say, Lord, save me, or I have no other hope. If you do not save, I am lost completely. Those are the ones the Lord shows his favor to, his loving kindness. Let's look together at Psalm 107. Psalm 107 in the first three verses really introduced the psalm to us by this call for thanksgiving, this call for praise. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. This giving of thanks is done in an expression of praise. This is no simple thank you, as though someone held the door for you and you're you are showing or expressing your thankfulness for that, that small gesture of kindness. This rather, in verse 1, is a worship that is filled with gratitude for who God is and what he has done. Notice who God is in this verse. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. He is good. God's goodness is not a subjective assessment that he has our approval. This is not like calling a meal good, as though you're saying, this is pleasing to me. God is objectively good. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon says it here. His is no common goodness. He is good by nature and essence and proven to be good in all the acts of his eternity. Compared with him, there is none good, no, not one, but he is essentially, perpetually, superlatively, infinitely good. That's the goodness of God. He is incomparable in his goodness. Everything he does is marked by this attribute of his goodness. God is not only worthy of our praise when we are finding ourselves in a favorable position, when everything in life seems to be going the way we want it to. God is good objectively and therefore worthy of praise even when we are in total despair and nothing in our lives seems to be pleasant. Even then, we should give thanks to God for he is good. And secondly, the author points us to what he has done. His loving kindness is everlasting. Uh, the idea of his loving kindness here. This is the Hebrew word hesed. This is a, a rich Hebrew term that is difficult to convey with one single English word. If you had to boil it down to one English word, it would be the concept of grace in the New Testament, a, a free, undeserved gift. But in the Old Testament, you constantly use these compounds. And I, I do like the way that the English translators put together loving kindness, because that is indeed what it is. It is, it is a covenant love that is loyal and steadfast that is based in God's own character it's not based in the merit of the one receiving it it is an attribute of God that 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 demonstrates he is faithful to his covenant and he shows love not because man reciprocated the love or because man deserved the love or or because of mere emotions God's loving kindness has no expiration date he shows kindness because it is part of who he is. The author says here, it is everlasting. It's just the idea of saying it's without end. There is no expiration date on God's loving kindness. He is never going to run short of it. Verse 2 and 3 call us to grateful praise. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north, and from the south, the redeemed are those whom God has delivered from oppression, from peril, from death, from slavery. 
the, this word redemption has a different nuance depending on the context that it's used in. But every time, regardless of context, it always implies that the one doing the redeeming is bearing the burden or paying the price. They are the one exerting the effort and doing whatever is necessary to deliver the redeemed from their dreadful circumstance. They bear the burden on themselves. These are those that God has bore their burden. God has paid their price. They are the redeemed. And the author says, let them say so. What are they saying? They are saying, praise God for his character and his works. Praise God because he is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. They are those whom he's redeemed out of the hand of the adversary. It's just another way of saying he delivered them from their trouble picture of God rescuing believers from their trouble. And he he doesn't just take them out of their trouble and leave them wandering aimlessly. In verse 3, he gathers them from the lands. God is a, a God that brings us out of despair and puts us into his flock. Gathering his people is protecting them and providing for them. Ultimately, we see the the ingathering of all the saints of God as we sang about this morning uh, when when we will sing that we are saved to sin no more. You have a glimpse of this in Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10, where John looks and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is what our God does. He doesn't just pull us out of despair so we can wander our way back into it. He puts us in his flock and he cares for us and and provides for us. Which leads us into our outline here in verse 4. The Lord rescues and gathers his people. And then we will see in the following verses Starting in verse 4, all the way through the end of the psalm, five demonstrations of God's power to save. Five demonstrations of God's power to save. And these demonstrations of God's power are what produce that, that grateful praise we saw in verse 1 to 3. The first one we'll see in verses 4 through 9. He saves the directionally lost. He saves the directionally lost. Secondly, in 10 through 16... He saves the intentionally lost. Third, in 17 to 22, he saves the thoughtlessly lost. Fourth, he saves the helplessly lost in 23 to 32. And then lastly, we'll see in 33 to 43, he sovereignly reverses circumstances. If you missed those, we're going to walk through them all together now. So as we get into verse 4, you you will see a pattern in these first four scenes. You heard me uh, identify them the same way. He saves, and then these different descriptions of this person who is lost. Well, all four of these follow the same pattern. And here's the pattern. First, you see their peril, and then their prayer, and then God's provision, and then lastly, their praise. This is the, the, the sequence that we follow in these first four demonstrations of God's power. Let's look together at verses 4 through 9. God saves the directionally lost. Here's their peril, verses 4 and 5. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty, and their soul fainted within them. 
These are helpless wanderers. I call these, uh, these are the directionally lost because it describes them being in a, a wilderness or a desert region here. This is an uninhabited wasteland. They are trying to find their way, as you see in verse 4, to an inhabited city. Presumably that inhabited city would be a place of refuge where it would have the resources they need for living. But this place that they find themselves in is a, a place with no resources to sustain them. There's no one to stop and ask for directions. The implication is that there's not even a path to follow. They're directionally lost. They're just wandering around looking for a way to civilization, looking for a way to security. The end of verse 5 describes their emotional response to this physical distress. It says their soul fainted within them. They've been wandering so long that they're at the point where they've given up hope. They, they don't know which way to turn, and now they've turned every direction, it seems, and none of those directions led them anywhere good. They, they can't find food. Notice in 5, they're hungry and thirsty, and now they've given up. It seems there's no possible hope. They're just going to wander around until they die. Well, many of us likely have not found ourselves in that situation in a physical sense because we live in such a day that we have a, a, a GPS device continually in our pocket. We can always see our exact location on the globe. Yet in this day, there would not have been such a luxury. But I am confident that many of us have found ourselves at this juncture spiritually. Where spiritually you would say, I am lost, I'm exhausted, I have no sense of direction, I am starving, and I feel all alone. There's no one to give me answers, no one to give me direction. Here's what this psalm has for us. There is hope for this directionally lost soul. Look at their prayer in verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. If you have New American Standard, the term the Lord is in all caps. What is this emphasizing? It is the covenant name of God. They're calling out to Yahweh, the one who makes a covenant with his people, and he keeps that covenant because it demonstrates his character. There were no people to deliver them, no resources to sustain them, no road signs to guide them, and yet they were not without hope. They just needed to come to this place of humble dependence and cry out to Yahweh. And then you see God's provision. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. The gracious Lord heard their cries and delivered them out of this aimless wandering. It says he led them by a straight way. This would have been a, a prepared path. They've been wandering around with no direction. And then suddenly, as they cry out to Yahweh, the Lord sets before them, this is the path to take. Here's the straight way that will lead you to the refuge where you will have resources. You'll have food and water. You'll be sustained. And then their praise comes in verse 8 and 9. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Those who have been delivered from weary wandering are to give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness. Verse 8 is a refrain that we'll see repeated over and over in these first four scenes of God's power to save. He's ultimately saying this is the only logical response to being an unworthy recipient of the Lord's kindness. This fuels your gratitude for Yahweh when you see that you have received loving kindness that you didn't deserve. 
Notice in verse 9 that the Lord uh, ministered to the weariness of their souls. It says, He has satisfied. This describes their needs being met in full, that they no longer thirst or hunger because their souls have been satisfied or, or satiated. And notice the phrase, with what is good. We already described back in verse 1, it is God who is good. By his very nature, he does what is good. And now those who have called on him are being ministered to by his goodness and satisfied with it. Let's look at the second picture demonstration of God's power to save in verses 10 through 16. God saves the intentionally lost. Here's their peril in verse 10. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains. Now this describes people languishing in prison. One commentator says this, guilt, darkness, grinding toil, and the construction of bonds and doors and bars create another dimension of distress distinct from the first scene. It's absolutely right. This is quite a different experience. They're still in, in peril, in difficulty, in turmoil, but by the language described here, they're in a much different type of, of difficulty. They're in the shadow of death. This is what we saw in Psalm 23 that we're familiar with, which is really a, a valley of deep darkness. It is a, a valley that is so dark, there's no hope. They have no thought of getting out of this. Verse 11 is why we're identifying them as intentionally lost. Notice in verse 11, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. These people are lost because they rebelled against God and His Word. They, they spurned His counsel. They rejected it. They had contempt that God would give direction for their lives. They didn't merely break some superficial rules or, or pushed against societal norms. They are in rebellion against the very words of God spurning God's counsel and intentionally disrespecting and disregarding his word. And verse 12 gives a principle that is repeated throughout the wisdom literature. It says, therefore, he humbled their heart with labor and they stumbled and there was none to help. This is the principle that we tell our kids all the time and included in Proverbs thirteen fifteen: the way of the transgressor is hard. Psalm 32, 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. What does this imply? The Lord is kind enough that if you're going to rebel against his word, he is going to bring about some difficult consequences. Sorrow and, and difficulty here is described. Verse 12, God is using this hardship to humble their heart. And then notice what they acknowledge at the end of verse 12. There's no one to help. They're brought to despair and they see They've gotten themselves into this mess, and there is no one to help them. So in verse 13, here's their prayer. Then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble. Remember, God doesn't save anyone that doesn't need saving. These are not the self-righteous Pharisees that say, we don't need a Savior. These people that are described in verse 13, they come to recognize their rebellion they, they find themselves in a mess of their own making. And, and we're tempted to think when we're suffering consequences of our own sin, we, we think, yeah, I'm, I'm beyond saving. I've spurned the word of God. I can't possibly receive any grace at this point. And we are to think again. 
Our God is not lacking in loving kindness, and he demonstrates he has the power to save even the intentionally lost. Now, I think you and I are, are prone to show compassion to the first group, the, the, the directionally lost, someone that seems to uh, be, be lost and not have any, any path or way out. And, and there's nothing in the first group that describes them as being in that, that position because of their own shortcomings. Whereas the second group, we're prone to say, you know, friend, you're, you have to sleep in the bed that you made. These are the consequences for your own sin. You know, I'm not going to bear your burden for you. This is what you deserve. Aren't you so thankful that God does not respond to us that way? Aren't you so thankful that he doesn't treat us the way that we deserve? Not only can you cry out to God when you're a lost traveler who didn't specifically do anything to get in this position, you can also cry out to God when you are in misery and you are the only one to blame. God saves us even from self-inflicted trouble. Look at verse 14, God's provision. He saved them out of their distresses. He broke them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Our God is so merciful that he saves out of self-inflicted hazard. It's absolutely incredible that the Lord wouldn't deliver them over and leave them without hope. But when they come in humility and brokenness, even the person in chains for their sin, here's what the Lord does. He brings them out of that darkness. He, He gives them hope and he breaks their bands apart. Even down in verse 16, he shattered the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron asunder. All these chains and shackles that were their own doing, God ripped them apart. He delivered them out of this suffering that they brought upon themselves. Why would God do that? Because that's the type of God he is. A God that loves to show his loving kindness. Their praise we see in verse 15. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron asunder. I think their praise might sound something like Charles Wesley in the third verse of And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. He says, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's a response of the one who sees their dreadful condition as being what they deserve, and yet God gave what they could never deserve. He sets them free. Praise God that he saves the intentionally lost. Look now, the third demonstration of God's power to save in 17 to 22, God saves the thoughtlessly lost. God saves the thoughtlessly lost in verse 17. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Now, this third group has similarities with the second group because they do find themselves in self-inflicted trouble. But the nature of the trouble is what is different here. It is, as you see in 17, because of their rebellious ways. But notice, it is that they are afflicted and their souls abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. This is describing a physical sickness. The, the, the physical bars are not restraining their life like the last group, but rather the, the sickness grips them. 
I think this sounds like David in Psalm 32, 3 and 4, where he is describing what it's like to live in unrepentant sin. This is what David says. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then verse 4, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. David's just saying my spiritual energy, my spiritual lifeblood is just drained away. Why? Because he's holding on to unrepentant sin. I think this is a similar situation in this third group. This sin is the cause of their affliction. And why do I call them the thoughtlessly lost? So just because of this term at the beginning, it is that they are called fools. Now, fools has nothing to do with lack of intelligence. It's not as though they do not understand the commandments of God. It is rather that they will not yield to them. They will not give thought to the word of God. They say, no, I'm not going to yield. I'm just going to do whatever I want. They refuse to listen to the wisdom of God and they run after their own pleasures. This is a spiritual folly, not a mental. It's not as though they can't comprehend what they should do. It is that they will not yield. They were afflicted there. That is a a verb that says they afflicted themselves. They brought this upon themselves so much so that in 18, they hate food. When you're in the misery where even the common grace of God of delicious food is miserable, it's a, a dreadful place to be. And they drew near to the gates of death. Now this is, I believe truly, they were near dying. Such severe self-inflicted consequence that they are near death. And then, verse 19, they pray. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. We should notice the pattern by now. It's the same way that we saw it in the first two scenes. There is no situation, whether unintended trouble or self-inflicted affliction, from which you cannot cry out to the Lord. They cry out, look what God does. His provision in verse 20, He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Now, His words are what He uses to heal them. Remember, this is a a sick soul. This is someone who has these internal afflictions. They are rebelling against the word of God and their body is showing the physical consequences of it. What is it that they need for healing? They need the word of God. He sends his word and heals them. How does the Lord do this? It is when they receive the word of God with humility and faith, they begin to think God's thoughts and not their own. They begin to respond in faith to the word of God and turn away from these practices that are literally destroying their lives. And then we see their praise in verse 21 and 22. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. Uh, Their response to receiving the unmerited loving kindness of God is to tell of the works of Yahweh with joyful singing. This is what you and I seek to do every single week when we gather and we worship the Lord in song. We are telling that our God is so gracious. He delivers sinners like us from affliction that we brought on ourselves, not because we deserved it, but because he is loving, because he loves to show his power to redeem sinners. As we sang this morning, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's what you and I are declaring. If you've been redeemed by Yahweh, you are telling of his works with joyful singing. 
he saves even the thoughtlessly lost. Let's look now at the fourth demonstration of God's power to save. In 23 through 32, he saves the helplessly lost. Here's their peril. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Verse 23 sets the stage that these are experienced sailors. Notice those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters. The implication is that this is their normal life. These are men who who sail for a living. They are likely merchants that are traveling on the seas at all times. They're accustomed to the difficulty that comes upon the seas. But this specific circumstance they find themselves in is more than they can handle. This is a storm that is to such a magnitude that even the most experienced sailor concludes he is absolutely helpless. It doesn't matter if he's been through a hundred storms before. This is beyond what he is capable of. I just think it's incredible that the Lord will tailor make a trial even in an area that we feel like we're strong. Even in an area that we feel like we can influence the outcome. We have some control here. And then the Lord crafts something just according to the wisdom of God that, that shows us we have no control. Notice at the end of verse 27, it says, they were at their wit's end. Literally, it's, it's, it means all their wisdom was swallowed up. All their wisdom was useless. They knew how to sail on the seas. They knew what to do in a storm, but it didn't matter at this point. This storm is more than they could possibly handle. This is a, a circumstance that they cannot control the outcome. And it's at this point, because of the grace of God bringing trials into our lives, that we recognize We are entirely powerless to control this situation. And this drives us to look beyond ourselves to the one who sovereignly brought the trial into our lives in the first place. Look at verse 28. Here's their prayer. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. This is incredible because we've already described the situation to be utterly hopeless. They couldn't call on a single person on the planet They are ones that are already skilled where they're at. They are hopeless, and yet they cry upon the Lord, and he brings help. Verse 28 to 30, God's provision. He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. This is incredible. The very one who caused the storm calms the storm. God makes the storm that brings these men to repentance to see, I have no control. If God doesn't save me, I'm entirely lost. Even in my strongest area, I cannot affect the outcome. This is God's loving kindness that, that includes bringing you and I through trials so that we acknowledge, if God does not help me, I have no help at all. I have no other hope than God intervening. And beloved, that is such a good place for you and I to be. When we stop trusting in ourselves, our own ability, and we trust in the Lord alone. Notice their praise in verse 31 and 32. 
Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him at the seat of the elders. Verse 31 has now been repeated for the fourth time. What does that imply? This is the only reasonable response whenever Yahweh shows loving kindness to us and delivers us. We are to respond with grateful praise to the Lord's loving kindness. I just ask the question, why is it that we have to be told this so much? You'd think if you've been delivered from uh, what you and I know to be eternal spiritual death and condemnation, why do we have to be reminded to give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindnesses? One of my pastors in seminary called this spiritual amnesia. We are, we are so prone to forget what the Lord accomplishes in our lives, and we're, we're so quick to be distracted by earthly things. And uh, back to verse 1, we assess the Lord's goodness by how favorable our circumstances are in the moment. When we get consumed with earthly things, we forget the riches of his loving kindness. This is why we need continual reminders of who God is and what he has done so that our praise will reflect the loving kindness that we have received. Verse 32 calls for that corporate praise. And I I believe that's why corporate praise is so important. When I say corporate, I just mean all of us coming together. Why must we gather together? Of course, Hebrews 10, as we'll eventually see if I get another opportunity to teach in Hebrews, is, is that Hebrews 10 tells us not to forsake the assembling of one another together. And he goes on, Hebrews 10 to 29, to say, because the danger is apostasy. If you and I are not reminding one another of the redemption that we have in Christ, spiritual amnesia sets in. We forget how good God has been to us. We think we can... Take it for granted and, and live for our own personal pleasure. The Lord here calls them to extol him in the congregation of the people. That's what we must do if God has shown us this incredible loving kindness. Now these four pictures of God's power to save, they show us that God's arm is never too short to save. He delivers from every circumstance. When we cry out to him in humility, the Lord responds with, saving grace he shows his loving kindness he doesn't hold on to his wrath because he delights in loving kindness this is why paul would say in romans 10 whoever believes in him will not be disappointed for there's no distinction romans 10 12 between jew and greek for the same lord is lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him for whoever calls on the name of the lord will be saved Paul says it definitively. If you call on him in humility and faith, you will be saved. There's no question. Why? Because that's what kind of God we serve. A God who is abounding in steadfast love. Let's look quickly at this last demonstration of the power of God in verse 33 through 43. I've called this, he sovereignly reverses circumstances. He sovereignly reverses circumstances. Now, this is a, a different scene. This is not another scene of, of, of peril, prayer, God's provision, and praise. It's not a, another uh, scene of a certain circumstances that God changed. It is rather showing just his power over all humanity, his sovereign power to reverse circumstances. Look at verses 33 to 38. God illustrates this power over land. Verse 33, he changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground. 
a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. What is the author saying here? He's, he, he brings up this term change. You, you, you see it there in, in verse 33, and this is ultimately the theme of 33 to 38. God has the power to change circumstances, so much so that he can, he can change the land. This is true climate change happening right here uh, by the hand of God. Why? Because he is bringing about his purposes. This is his purposes in judgment and his purposes in redemption. And the author is just saying, if you think you are too far outside of God's reach for him to bring about judgment, you need to think again. Look at what God can do with the very land that you're living on. He takes a river that would serve to bring water to this land. It would, it would give them the ability to live, and he changes it into a wilderness. That's the, the word for a desert. He takes springs of water that it would bring life, and he changes those into thirsty ground. He takes a fruitful land that would have produced food for a harvest. And what does he change that to? A salt waste. He has just removed all of their security, all of their livelihood, all of their resources. Why? Because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. This is a demonstration that you are never outside of God's reach to judge. The wicked may believe that they are safe in their rebellion. They may say, I have money. I have power. I have resources. Even a king might say, I have armies. Uh, there, there's nothing the Lord can do to me. And, and God just says, I have the sovereign power to reverse your circumstances. The very ground that's sustaining your life, I can turn it into a desert. If you're finding comfort in your rebellion to the Lord because you think life is good right now, you should take careful note that God can sovereignly reverse any circumstance in a moment to bring about his judgment. And on a positive note, he can do the thing, same thing to bring about redemption. Look at 35 to 38. He changes a wilderness, that's the desert, into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city. And sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also, he blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. This is showing the opposite of what God did to the wicked. Now to the, to the righteous, to the believer, he provides for them. He changes the land under their feet so that they now have the necessary resources. He prospers them. This doesn't mean... If you believe the Lord, he'll prosper you financially. But this is a demonstration that God has the sovereign power to change your circumstances and that God cares for his people. You can trust in God's power to save. Just consider Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Isaiah is reminding them, Beloved, you're never outside of God's reach to save you. And the psalmist here is reminding the wicked, you're never outside of God's reach to judge you and the righteous. God has the power to save. Look at 39 to 42 as you see another sovereign reversal of circumstances. 39, when they are diminished and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow. This is a new group here that is a group that is living under oppression. They are bowed down, just describing a, a difficult time in misery and in sorrow. And then you see who is doing this to them in verse 40. He pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. This is a, a picture of, 
of unrighteous rulers uh, ruling their power over so that they're oppressing others and they're living uh, with all these great abundant blessings while they're oppressing those under them. And what does God do here? He sovereignly reverses the circumstance. He pours contempt on the princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. This is like what the Lord did to Nebuchadnezzar, humbling him to where he is this sovereign rule over, over all these great lands and then a short time later, he's eating grass like a beast. This is what the Lord can do. He can shift circumstances for his own purpose. In 41, here's what happened to the oppressed ones. But he set the needy securely on high away from affliction and makes his families like a flock. The idea here is just God removing them from the, the suffering and the sorrow and setting them safely, inaccessibly high and then Making their family like a flock is just demonstrating God's, uh, God's love for his children and his tender watch care as their shepherd. Verse 42, here's the result of God's reversals. The upright see it and are glad. Those who are walking in the way of the Lord, they see God's sovereignly changed circumstances. They rejoice because God is vindicating his righteousness. He's providing for his people. What do the wicked say? But all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. That's Romans three nineteen and 20. They're without excuse. They are condemned. They, they, they have the law of God telling them they've been in rebellion this whole time, and now they see it. God is just. He has brought about judgment. And Psalmist offers us one more exhortation in verse 43. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. The psalmist just doesn't want us to get out of this psalm without thinking again how kind the Lord is. Notice the plural. He says, consider the loving kindnesses of Yahweh. He's saying, look at all these pictures of God's redemptive power. What kind of God do we have? One that saves out of all of these circumstances and shows us mercy that could never be deserved. May we be continually considering the loving kindnesses of Yahweh and his endless power to save so that we would forever call on him in humility and faith and we would see his power on display. With that in our hearts and minds, let's turn our attention now to the Lord's table. Let's bow together. Lord, you are so kind. We thank you that you have the sovereign power to orchestrate all things for your perfect purposes. We thank you that you will save those who are directionally lost, even those who are intentionally lost, and those who are are sick and suffering because of their sin. And you even save those who are in circumstances they could not possibly control the outcome. And you do that because you have the sovereign power to change all circumstances, and you love to put your kindness on display. I pray that we would be trophies of your loving kindness, that Everyone who sees our lives and interacts with us would hear that we are giving thanks to you for your loving kindnesses as you have put them on display in the person and work of Christ. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.